Welcome to Running for the Roses. After a week off, we are back. It is off-season mode. I got Lucas Rohde with me. I'm Ryan Baffalucas. Uh, ready to talk some college football. Uh, Lucas, the calendar has turned to February. We, we are in, I think, one of the deader times. I think probably February, March, maybe the deadest time for college football. But uh, as we'll get to over the next probably hour or so, lots of fun things, lots of intriguing things in, uh, in the college football world. How are you doing, my buddy? I know you were in Dallas last week for a little conference, got a little weather, uh, some issues there. How has the last week or so been for you? It was good. Luckily, I got into Dallas before the ice storms hit, but um, was down there Tuesday and Wednesday when they got like an inch or two of ice. Um, wasn't too bad. I was at a nice hotel, so there could be worse places to be stranded. Luckily, we didn't have any electrical issues or heating issues, but um, no, it was good, but happy to uh, to be back. Um, and like you mentioned, kind of a slow time of the year. We, you know, we it, Especially this week, you didn't have the Super Bowl or any games this week for like the first time since August. Uh, but I think it was a good breather. But like you said, always a plethora of stuff that we can talk about. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll wrap up the 2023 recruiting class. The February signing period uh, was last week. Couple news and notes coming out of that, including one that is very prevalent for uh, my hometown team and uh, Lucas's former school, Arizona State. Uh, putting an end to the Jaden Rashada saga. Uh, a couple other high-profile commitments that we'll get to kind of put a bow on the 2023 recruiting class. Lucas and I will then get into some news and notes, um, a couple things uh, stewing for us, including uh, a hysterical a uh, Brian Ferentz uh, clause in his uh, contract at Iowa. And then we'll uh, end the pod talking about some, uh, some coaching. Going to put a little bow on the coaching carousel from 2022. Hires we like, hires we think will be uh, intriguing to follow the next couple of years, and then maybe hires we don't uh, think are going to work out, hires we were not too high. <coughs> um, so, Lucas, let's start with National Signing Day. Uh, last Wednesday, um, a week ago today, as we record here on the 8th, and the biggest news, weirdly enough, involved Arizona State, involved Kenny Dillingham. Arizona State lands four-star quarterback Jane Rashada, the, one of the most – I think besides Arch Manning, probably the most high-profile quarterback recruit in this class now, whether you like it or not. Um, The saga the last few months of the initial commitment to Miami, the commitment to Florida, the NIL issues with their collective. He ends up getting released during the month of December and uh, commits in science with Arizona State, where his dad was a defensive lineman uh, in the 90s. And uh, on the field, a pretty – Big coup for Kenny Dillingham. Um, gets a top 100 quarterback, one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the country. Um, interesting to see how this plays out and what has become now a really crowded quarterback room at Arizona State. But Lucas, from an outsider's perspective, just kind of your thoughts on how this, uh, how the Jaden Rashada, uh, the Jaden Rashada saga uh, ended. Uh, well, kind of. I don't want to say anticlimactically. I'm happy he's going. One to ASU, obviously, former school of mine, happy for you, among all the rest of our other ASU uh, fans that we have that listen to our podcast, or at least hopefully listen to this podcast. Um, but no, I think it kind of ended, like I said, kind of anticlimactically. It wasn't like we heard him being chased around by a bunch of other schools for all these NIL deals. From what it's been reported, he doesn't even have like a large NIL deal, if any going to ASU um, after reportedly $13 million uh, he was going to get at Florida um, ended up turning out not to be true. So uh, one, I'm happy for the kid. I think out of all this, like you feel bad for Jalen because I think no matter what, until he maybe goes to the NFL or he proves that he is a premier college quarterback, this is something that he is going to be living on. There's now a target um, on his back, and he deserves really none of it. This is a kid that I got, got caught up in a bunch of adults who didn't know what the hell they were doing. Um, but yet he's probably going to be blamed if he doesn't overperform or everything like this, or he's not worth whatever Florida was going to be giving him. Um, so I'm ashamed for him, but I'm just happy he was able to, to end up at a spot, especially in – uh, 
the later part or the the late signing day, which is now what national signing day has basically become where pretty much everybody is filled up on quarterbacks because most quarterbacks are early enrollees trying to get on campus so that they're ready for spring ball. Um, so I'm happy he was able to land at a power five gig and he was able to land somewhere that I think he's going to be able to compete right away. Um, or playing time. What are your general thoughts on that as an ASU fan and alum? Yeah, you know, so I was reading, I, I think, first of all, it's, it's the highest rated recruit to sign with Arizona State since Jaden Daniels. Um, and Jaden Daniels in three years at Arizona State was really good. I mean, there's mm-hmm. something to signing a high profile quarterback. Um, and a lot of the times, high profile offensive skill players will follow them, right? Um, Jane Rashada clearly can throw the, can throw the ball. Uh, had offers from basically every school in the country, every major school in the country, was committed to Miami, was committed to Florida, took a ton of visits across the country to Clemson and Texas A&M and, um, you know, Georgia. So I, uh, I I look at it like on the field, I mean, Arizona State has a really interesting quarterback room, right? You have you have Trenton Borgay, who was the walk-on last year that played pretty well down the stretch for them. You have Drew Pine, the, North, the, uh, the Notre Dame transfer, who's I think has three years of eligibility, two or three mm-hmm. years of eligibility. Uh, they also brought in Gunnar Romney from BYU, who's uh, another local kid, uh, you know, quarterback from BYU. And then you have Jaden Rashada, who's the top 100, top 100 overall player, highest ranked player in this class and a, and a, a top 10 quarterback. And most people think he has the arm talent and some of the physical tools to be really good. And Kenny Dillingham has worked with some good quarterbacks. Know, look at what he did with Jordan Travis at Florida State and you know Bo Nix last year. So I'm intrigued by it, certainly. Um, Arizona State has struggled at the quarterback position outside of Jaden Daniels, really, the kind of the last half decade or so. Um, <coughs> and I think if nothing else, like it's a deep quarterback room. There's going to be a lot of competition. There will be some depth there in case somebody gets injured. Um, and, you know, listen, if, if, if nothing else, Kenny Dillingham has proven that he is going to recruit. Right. I mean, he is going to put the work in. They are going to really grind. This staff um, has done a really nice job. They have over, I think, 45 new players between the transfer portal and, and some of the late high school additions since they since they took over in, you know, early December. Um, I've been very impressed with Kenny Dillingham. This is kind of a cherry on top. If it works, great. If it doesn't, you know, who knows? I think we had. I probably said a couple of weeks ago, I would expect Jane Rashada to transfer at some point. And who knows, maybe he balls out and gets his NIL money somewhere else. You know, maybe he <laughs> isn't as good as his recruiting ranking would suggest. So um, it just was very strange to see Arizona state, like get, pick up some buzz late in the late mm-hmm. in the, you know, early, like late January, Monday, Tuesday, and then signing day, you had Steve Wolf on 24 seven, basically saying, I really like Arizona state here. And sure enough, they're able to get him. So, We'll see what happens with recruits. You, you just never know, but it's, it's yeah. nice that to see that you have a staff and a coach that really is going to grind on the recruiting trail and put their best foot forward in that respect because that was not what the previous staff did. Yeah, and like you said, good players like to follow the good players, and especially a quarterback. It'd be interesting to see if they piggyback that here in the 2024. Um, they have a selling point there. They have a good young quarterback that most of those guys are going to be able to play with. So I think it's right. And did – did I read right too? Uh, Jalen's dad played at ASU, so there was yeah, but he was a, he was a well. defensive lineman in the nineties. Yeah, hmm. awesome. So we'll see. Uh, really, the only other big news from signing day was top fifty recruit Nicholas Harbor um, signing to South Carolina, borderline five star player. Harbor is a really interesting player. He's a like six foot five, two hundred thirty pound. Played a lot of defense but also like plays tight end and he runs the hundred meters in like 10.25 seconds or something like (laughs) legitimately going to try to qualify for the Paris Olympics as a sprinter, Um, a freak athlete, Bruce Feldman every year does like the biggest freaks in college football, just that athletically. He already is like, watch out for this kid next year because he is a freak. I think he's going to play offense in South Carolina. Um, South Carolina also picks up the number one offensive tackle in the class of 24 according to ESPN. So Shane Beamer, we, t- we talked about him a little bit in the SEC season in review. South Carolina's got some momentum here, and it it continued with a really big addition on signing day with Nicholas Harper. Yeah, no, I mean, they, right now they have, I believe they finished with uh, the 16th best recruiting class in the country, um, with the majority of those players being 
four stars or higher. And we, we talked about this kind of coming into the year, you know, what kind of maybe what South Carolina could be under Shane Beamer. And I feel like getting Nicholas Harvard to me is similar to when they got to Davion Clowney years ago with, with Steve Spurrier. And we're able to curtail that with top a bunch of other top 15 classes. And it gave them a string of, uh, you know, 10, 11 win seasons. I think they had three in a row um, kind of at their peak. Now, does that mean that's going to happen? No, but I feel like there there's kind of a similar trajectory here. And I thought South Carolina was somewhat overrated coming into the year. I thought they were kind of the off-season team uh, of the um, of la- of 2022. But we saw how they ended the year with a ton of momentum, beating Clemson, also beating Tennessee. You know, they absolutely whooped Tennessee. Uh, yep. We're basically one drive away from knocking off Notre Dame in their bowl game. So. Uh, and with the the guys they have returning next year, I think they're going to be a team to watch. Nicholas Harper, I think, is a guy, whether he's playing offense or defense, is probably going to play uh, next year. So I'm excited to see what he can do down in the SEC. So now that the uh, official 2023 recruiting class is over, a quick look at the top 15. Um, Lucas said Alabama or uh, South Carolina comes in at 16. Um, Alabama, number one. Georgia, number two. Texas, number three. Oklahoma, number four. Uh, Ohio State 5, LSU, Miami, Oregon, Tennessee, Notre Dame 6 through 10, Clemson at 11, USC 12, Penn State 13, Florida 14, Texas A&M at 15. A lot of SEC flavoring, including if you include Texas and Oklahoma in there. Uh, The rich get richer, but um, I think certainly some intriguing classes. USC, smaller class, 21 commits. They come in at 12. Oregon actually finishes with the highest ranked class in the Pac-12. At 29, we saw Brian Kelly finish with a top six class at LSU. And, and Oklahoma, I mean, cut after a six and seven season to finish fourth with 26 commitments, three five-star commitments. Um, I think very solid for Prent Venables. Texas A&M, uh, after having the number one class in the history of the uh, internet era uh, in 2022, comes in at number 15 in 2020. Three. Uh, anything wrapping up the signing day, the 2023 class you want to touch on before we move on? No, just kind of like you mentioned, kind of the rich getting richer. If if these standings were two years from now, you would have would have had the SEC would have had the top five out of the top six classes um, overall in these rankings. They had uh, a top 12, or they had 12 out of the top 31. Um, we were just heaping praise on South Carolina's class. They were the only. They were 16th best nationally, but they were only seventh best in the SEC. Um, and it dwarfs everybody. The Big Ten uh, had five uh, uh, top 30 recruiting classes. The Pac-12 also had five, and then the Big 12 and ACC had four apiece. So I think, um, you know, locate uh, recruiting is like realty. It, or real, or uh, yeah, like realty. It's. Uh, Location, 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 and yeah. the SEC is in the spot where it has the best recruiting grounds, and they take, hey, and they take advantage of it. But then they also recruit nationally very, very well. Just about every program in there does. So um, we'll see if it matters to wins, and also to see. I'm interested to see if one, if the Big Ten, um, especially, can do any ways to catch up to that, because I think that is a, an extremely wide gap that they're already doing. There's some interesting articles that have come out recently about how the the lack of of football growth in states like California have really hurt the West Coast schools. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, like beside if you're in the Pac-12 footprint, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, not really known for producing many many high profile players. Arizona actually does I think a pretty good job. I would say they're probably a top ten, top eight state in terms of producing high school good high school football players. But really, it's California and California, whether it's political, whether it's just parents not wanting their kids to play football because there's so many other things to do, um, especially like big offensive and defensive linemen. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been issues. And then I think that's why USC attacked the portal so heavily last year. They had a smaller high school class this year as well. So and in, in Florida and Georgia and Alabama and South Carolina and North Carolina, like you just you don't have those issues. Right. No. So. Um, certainly an interesting conversation to have. All right, let's uh, let's let's move on to a, a 
team that you're familiar with, Lucas, the uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes. And, you know, we had talked about it, just how bad Iowa's offense is. We talked about it in the preseason. We talked about it during the season. They're so bad. They're so bad. They got to fire Brian Ferentz, right? They got to fire Brian Ferentz. And they did not fire Brian Ferentz. Uh, Brian Ferentz uh, will stay on staff as the offensive coordinator. However, uh, he has a couple new incentives uh, in, in his contract. I'm reading from an ESPN article from Tom Van Heron. In the new contract, Ferentz will make a base salary of $850,000, which I believe is about $50,000 less than he made mm-hmm. last year. He will be able to have his contract reinstated to a two-year rolling agreement with a bonus and salary adjustment if the team meets certain requirements. The team needs to score at least 25 points per game with a minimum of seven and win a minimum of seven games in 2023 for Ferentz to hit his goals. The incentive marks, Tom Van Heron goes on, are relatively low. 25 points per game would have placed Iowa tied for 85th among 131 FBS teams. This past season, the Hawkeyes ranked 123rd, averaging just 17.7 total points per game. Offense, second to last in yards per game, third to last in yards per play, averaged under 100 rushing yards and 156.7 passing yards, which was 123rd overall. Lucas, we have seen the <coughs> have seen coaches get shorter and shorter leashes, assistants and head coaches. We have seen so many coordinators. Um, I saw an interesting stat that Warren Rosario for Wake Forest is entering his 10th season as their offensive coordinator. The yeah. other offensive coordinators in the conference combined have five years experience, with the majority <laughs> of them being brand new this year. We don't see things like we see at Iowa, right? Kirk Ferentz has been there two-plus decades. Brian Ferentz has been there a ton. Phil Parker, their defensive coordinator, has been there a long time as well. Um, it is pretty embarrassing for Iowa, in my opinion. Just, I mean, like you said before we pressed record, like Iowa's a public university. Like, this was going to get out. This was not something they were going to be able to contain. Um, somebody found it, and they, they wrote about it, and it's been embarrassing. So what are your thoughts on these provisions and on, on Iowa kind of being um, just not really making a move? It's just so on brand for what Iowa yeah. is yeah. right now. And I, I put my shoes of, uh, of an Iowa fan. Um, I, I remember reading kind of the message boards. Apparently – you know, Kirk uh, Ferentz had said, their head coach had basically said he was not going to make any staff changes until after their bowl game. So everyone on their message boards was like, all right, we just got to stick through the bowl game. There's going to be changes. There has to be everything. After the bowl game, all of a sudden he's like, he wants to evaluate how the season went. So people are like, okay, give it a few weeks. We're finally going to have some news. Then it was, Okay, maybe he just wants to wait till signing day so that he can keep everybody happy in the class, not make any changes. And then, of course, just a few days after signing day, we get this. And you saw on the message boards people go from being optimistic that there was going to be a change to the longer it went on, you knew that nothing was going to happen. And it sucks because you know, like, if this isn't Kirk Ferentz's son, like, this doesn't happen. Like, this isn't like a a tough decision for him. They finished, they were a power five team and they finished 130th or what was it? 123rd in points per game. They still won eight games this year. I think it was like 120th or something like that. It's it's incredibly embarrassing to say that you have to hit 25 points per game when that would, it's not even top half. No, it's not even top half. It's 85th. You're still bad at your job for doing that. You're really not. You're not even incentivizing mediocrity. <laughs> you're incentivizing below that, and for a program that's as proud as Iowa, that has had so much success under their current head coach, and with the resources that you have as a Big Ten institution, there is no reason to settle for this. To me, it just feels like you're like we are what we are. There's no changing, and it's like you have no idea, like. And I can't imagine, like, if you're a recruit, you're an offensive recruit, why the hell would you want to go play there? Knowing that this is the type of standard that they expect to be on offense. 
Like unless if I'm, you're an offensive lineman or a tight end, yeah, I have no yeah. idea why. If you're a running back or a wide receiver, especially or, or a quarterback, which is the most important position. For, like if I'm Cade McNamara, like why did he go there? Like to me, when when he went there, when Eric All decided to commit there, I was like, okay, they're probably promising him some changes on the offense, and it's not. And you know their offense. Even when before Brian was the coordinator, look, I would never had huge explosive top ten offenses, but in their really good years, like they were efficient, they took care of the ball, they could put up points when they needed to, they complemented their defense really, really well. But now it's just like they only play three sides or two sides of the ball. They play special teams and they play defense, and the fact they're so good at it and they can still win seven games speaks a lot to the development on that side. But it just, I just, I can't imagine, like, I, I'm, I was one of my most hated teams that I have, and I, like, feel for them. Like, I want to, like, scream uh, because I just think it's really unfair to, to that fan base because, to me, it just feels like your, your coaching staff is like, we are what we are, and this is, like, what it's going to be. We can't be any better than this. When, of course you can. Like, it's laughable that you think that. Well, and, you know, you because you were like you're right. You go back and look five six years ago. Like Iowa was. You look at T.J. Hawkinson, Noah Fan, two first round tight ends. Tristan Wirfs, a first round tackle. Nate Stanley's been playing in the NFL as a backup quarterback for a while. You just haven't had that the last couple of years, right? Charlie Jones transfers to Purdue, has a huge season. Like off to the draft now. Like Iowa just doesn't have that. Maybe Cade McNamara comes in. Um, but it's an offense that is it's a little bit like Jimbo. They're they're stuck in the eighties and nineties. They're and I get that in the big like in in the Big Ten to some extent, you have to play that way. The weather mm-hmm. dictates that. The opposing teams dictate that. It's very hard. Besides maybe Ohio State, like nobody else really plays and potentially Wisconsin now if they have Phil Longo. Um but like but, I understand you have to play a certain yeah. style. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to get the athletes. So you have to develop them and you have to create kind of a creative offense. You have to scheme guys open. They're just not doing that. And they haven't, they have not done that the last few years. They've really relied on their defense. They've really relied on turnovers. They've, I mean, how many jokes do we make about Iowa's punter being up for the Heisman trophy last year, the last couple of years, right? <laughs> they're just going to continue that. But again, if you're, if, if, if you're a Wisconsin fan, you're Minnesota, you're Illinois, who cares? Yeah, this is I'll great for you guys. Yeah. Enjoy. Well, and that's what, and I'm not saying, well, I'm partially saying this because I am a Wisconsin fan. That's why I think Wisconsin is going to be so interesting this year because they are moving to a vastly different offense than that. They're going to be playing the air raid. And to me, my, my question is, I think I, I understand the reasons why Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, they play that side. Like you mentioned, weather can dictate that. But also, that's that's the best talent that you're getting in that area. It's offensive linemen. It's tight ends. Big, strong dudes. You're going to play to your strengths. But part of me feels like in this day of age, though, too, like, yes, your talent can dictate what offense you're going to run. But I also think it can – I think in now age, it can be reversed, where the offense you run can dictate the type of talent that you do get. Um and that's why, obviously, Ohio State, Michigan—they're going to get the guys that they really want. But guys want to play out Ohio State because they play in a crazy good offense. And that's why I'm interested to see if a team like Wisconsin making this type of philo- so philo- philo- philosophical switch—if um, they have success this first year—will that bring more of that t- those talented guys you need to to run that system? I just think it's a it's an interesting dynamic and. Sadly, at Iowa, you're not going to be seeing it this year. Um, but the funny thing is that those 25 points per game, that that's just team total. That is counting what the special teams does and what the offense does. I mean, for, for God's sakes, they had almost just as many pick sixes this year as they had passing touchdowns, as uh, which is sad. Um, so he could still be saved out. I just think it's going to be hilarious. We're gonna, it's going to be the end of the year. They're gonna be playing Nebraska. Their yep. their average point total is gonna be at like twenty four point eight, 
and you're going to see like Ryan Ferentz trying to game to hit that 25 plus. They're like, and, I can't wait for like early in the season, they're playing their like FCS opponent or they're playing like Nevada. And it's like 55 to nothing. And Kate McNamara is still in the game. They're still throwing. <laughs> it's like, we got to We, we got to bank him now, boys. Here we go. Come on. <laughs> He's doing, doing reverses and like yeah. wide receiver passes, like trick plays up 40 points. It's like 55 oh, to three. They're running like four, you know, four wide outs and they're just playing. <laughs> they're throwing, throwing birds. Oh, that's Ooh. good. Hey, uh, before we jump on to the coaching stuff, I, I did want to get your opinion on the Alabama coordinators. We talked about, mm. uh, talked about it a couple of weeks ago, Alabama two coordinator positions open. Uh, Bill O'Brien takes the OC job for the Patriots and then, um, uh, Golding, uh, leaving to take the job at Old Miss, leaving in, you know, air quotes, um, kind of pushed out the door. So Alabama, uh, they have made their coordinator hires and I don't know if underwhelming is the right word. I, I don't know how to feel. Tommy Reese yeah. comes over after being the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. I don't think a lot of Notre Dame fans are super sad to see him leave. And then Kevin Steele, longtime Auburn defensive coordinator. He's bounced around a little bit. He was most recently at Miami last year running their defense. Um, Mario Cristobal, side note, now has to replace two coordinators as well. He fired Josh Gaddis and, <laughs> and uh, Kevin Steele leaves. So that's kind of interesting as well. But um, what are your thoughts on Kevin Steele, Tommy Reese going to Alabama? We really haven't seen Nick do this. He usually either yeah. kind of keeps it in the family, promotes from within, or kind of has the coach rehabilitation tour. So what do you think? What are your thoughts on those hires? Yeah, the Kevin Steele one isn't super surprising. I think this is like Kevin Steele's third coaching stint uh, with Saban. Uh, he's been the defensive coordinator there at Alabama. Obviously, he has a huge history in the SEC. <laughs> I mean, it was rumored that he was a front runner before they hired Brian Harson to be the head coach at Auburn when he was the, the defensive coordinator there. Has this, has you know, so success in that conference. Obviously, yeah. Miami's defense this year was not good um, at all, but it was his first year. So I don't think it's that surprising. Um, he's getting kind of one of his own guys to kind of run that. The Tommy Reese thing, though, was really, really surprising. It wasn't like, I mean, last year's Notre Dame's offense, especially in the passing game, was nothing to write home about. Uh, I mean, this is a team that only put up 13 points against Stanford, uh, scored less than 20 points against Marshall. Uh, but, you know, he's a, he's, you know, he's kind of young. He's up and coming. I was listening to the Andy Staple show and they had Pete Sampson. who's the athletic reporter for Notre Dame. And he just said he didn't think him and Marcus Freeman ever had issues, but their, their coaching styles were, were much, much different. Where Tommy is kind of more of an old school guy when it comes to coaching players, kind of like Nick Saban is. And he felt like him and Saban probably clicked on that a little bit more. And for Tommy Reese, he just doesn't really think that he wants to be maybe a college football coordinator or head coach. He sees the path that, you know, Saban has helped all of his assistants to either go to the NFL and become coordinators or they become power five head coaches. And uh, to him, he felt like Reese probably knew his, his trajectory as a head coach would, um, would go a lot faster if he joined that staff. Um, but from Alabama's point of view, so that kind of makes sense from Tommy Reese's point of view, but from Alabama, just when, I just feel like you could have gotten, you could have your pick of the litter for who you wanted. Um, or maybe that was the case. Maybe they missed out on a handful of guys. You know, Saban, there's a question of how long Saban is going to continue coaching. And also, we know Saban's not the easiest coach to work with either. There's a reason why he's always going through assistance year after year. So, um, like I said, I think it's underwhelming. We won't know until they actually play. He'll have better skill talent than he had at Notre Dame. But, yeah, very intriguing to – to say the least, but as you mentioned, I don't. I'll be interested to see who Notre Dame also hires, and we that'll be a talk for a different discussion. But yeah. I'll be interested to see who Notre Dame hires too uh, to replace Reese's uh, Reese's move. I think I echo a lot of your thoughts. I mean, Kevin Steele is a proven defensive coordinator; is very good at Auburn. The coup attempt, notwithstanding, on the field, he was very, very good. I don't think he'll be attempting any coups with Nick Saban. Um, so I, I, I have you know. Um, 
faith there. It's not necessarily the, you know, young upper and comer that he, you know, feels a little bit, uh, not lazy, but just kind of obvious. Um, mm-hmm. Tommy Reese, like that offense is going to be really intriguing next year, Lucas. I mean, is it, who's the quarterback? Is it Ty Simpson? Is it, is it, um, uh, uh, Milrow? who came in for, you know, Bryce Young a couple times last year. They lose Jameer Gibbs. The wide receiver core left a lot to be desired. The offensive line left a lot to be desired. Had a lot of transfers out this year. It's going to be a fascinating 2023 offseason and a fascinating 2023 um, for for Alabama. Like, Tommy Reese, like, you don't have an established quarterback. You don't have an established running back. You got to find a number one target out, out you know, wide receiver. Um, and you have to try to come back and win the West. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, interesting. Certainly he'll have, I think, more skill talent than he would have at Notre Dame. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I think Nick Saban's pretty good at this, right? Nick Saban yeah. deserves some benefit of the doubt. So, um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, he brought in, you know, Brian Dayball was like a tight ends coach. He brought him in for one year for his offensive coordinator. Then he goes to the NFL after one year, one of the best coordinators in the NFL and now had a hell of a year as a head coach. So. I second your statement. He, like, if Nick Saban hires somebody, he usually has uh, a pretty good knowledge of, of what that coach can, is capable of. <sighs> All right, let's uh, let's move on here. About thirty minutes in, it's running for the roses. I'm Ryan Baffalucas, Lucas Rohde, uh, my partner from Nashville here, partner in crime on the pod. Um, we're going to wrap up talking some coaching carousel. Going to do a. a, a Little wrap, the 2023 coaching carousel we think is over. Um, there are a couple NFL jobs open looking at you, Jim Harbaugh. Um, but for now, it looks like um, the uh, the coaching carousel has ended. Man, we've had a lot of action. Uh, we've had a lot of action, some big jobs being filled, including both of our alma maters at Wisconsin, Arizona State, Matt Rule at Nebraska, Deion Sanders, Hugh Freeze. Uh, the tragic passing of Mike Leach and Zach Arnett's promotion, Ryan Walters, Jeff Brom going to Louisville, just a ton of stuff. So, Lucas, let's start positive. Let's start with some hires that we are pretty high on. Who are, who are some of the hires that you really, really like in this 2022 coaching carousel? So I had mentioned this when we kind of touched on it before, but I love, I love Brian Brom, or not Brian Brom, Jeff Brom to Louisville. I can't say enough about the job that Jeff Brom did at Purdue. That was a job, when he took it over, the four years under Daryl Hazel, they won a combined nine games in four years. Jeff Brom took them to four bowl games in six years. They won nine games in 2021. They played for a Big Ten title this year. And he's going to a place, obviously, that he loves, is dear to his heart, is his alma mater, a place he knows extremely well. That... And it's not like Louisville is a rebuild job. Look, Scott Satterfield wasn't amazing there, but it wasn't like he left the cover bare. So this isn't something he's going to have to start from scratch. They have a really good recruiting class uh, coming in as well uh, with a handful of blue chip guys. I think he's going to be able to build it, especially in a conference like the ACC that's getting rid of divisions so they don't have to play Clemson, Florida State, um, and NC State every single year. Um, so I think he is going to do really, really well there. It's very rare that you lose a head coach to another job and you upgrade. And I think that's exactly what Louisville did. Yeah. First coach I want to talk about, I would echo a lot of your thoughts on, uh, Jeff Rom. uh, the minutes got out of field left for Cincinnati. That was a, not a foregone conclusion, but very heavily expected that Brom was going to leave Purdue. Um, and I think he, he starts in a really good situation like you outlined at Louisville. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't talk about your boy Luke Fickle first because I, I when I look at hires that are – I think it's a great hire. I mean, Luke Fickle is a guy that every time, you know, Harbaugh flirted with the NFL, his name came up at Michigan. Every time Brian Kelly – when Brian Kelly left to go to LSU, his name was brought up um, at Notre Dame. I mean, Brian, like Luke Fickle has taken a team to the college football playoff. 57 and 18 with the Bearcats, three double digit win seasons, two conference championships, and a berth in the college football playoff. Like, that is about as solid as you can get. You look at Sauce Gardner, you look at Desmond Ritter, you look at Alex Pierce, like some of the really good pros that they have put out in the last handful of years at Cincinnati. He knows the region. I think he knows the conference. He knows the footprint. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it might be the best fit 
of any of of any job in this cycle. Um, I, I, I love when my Lucas Rohde tweets pop up about how, like, you know, it, it's the meme of like, you've changed my life. And <laughs> he's like, I'm literally just Luke Fickle. Like, I think Wisconsin fans are pretty energized. Um, hiring Phil Longo, I think is super intriguing. I have no idea if it's going to work out, but I think they're trying to do something out of the box. It's a shame they couldn't keep Jim Leonard, but I totally get it. Um, but yeah, Luke, Luke Fickle to me is, uh, I'm really high. I would, it would hard, it's hard for me to see him doing worse than Paul Christ, yeah. right? It's hard for me to see, even though early Paul Christ, like you could say they were on the cusp of the playoff in what, 2017, 2018, mm-hmm. yeah, 2017, um, yeah. conference championships, Rolls Bowl appearances. But like, I, I think Wisconsin will, will get back there sooner rather than later. I, I, I think, especially with assuming divisions will, will be, um, will be will be gone in the next couple of years. Like I, I think that's a team that will catapult itself into the top three or four uh, programs in the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean it's already Big Ten title or bust this year. That's th- those are the expectations. No, I'm just kidding. Darn, <laughs> you gotta average twenty six points a game or else Brian Ferris might get you. <laughs> oh no, I I had uh, I had Coach Fickle on my list as wasn't just trying to sound too much of a homer, but I agree with with all your things. I, I haven't been this excited about Wisconsin football in a long time, which is, which is saying something because I'm excited every year um, for us to play. But, um, and like you mentioned too, like great fit. And I didn't really realize that until just hearing him talk and the way he is like, he is, he's not a Wisconsin guy, but everything that I guess you could consider into a Wisconsin guy, he gets it. And so um, but I think he knows where we need to elevate. So elevate the program. So I'm really, really excited. My other one that I love, and guys, I'm fair warning, uh, Ryan's reaction to this. It might be our last podcast after. Oh you no! My, oh no! <laughs> I think so. Just a fair warning. This could be the last episode we ever record together. But I, I love Dion to Colorado. Ugh. Not necessarily. I love Dion because he kind of aggravates me the way he <laughs> makes you Ryan. But I just love it because it makes Colorado relevant again. And I think the more programs that are relevant out West is good for the sport. We just saw, you know, he just got um, something we didn't touch on in the, in the recruiting uh, recap. He got Carmani McLean, the number one yeah. DB in the country for the second year in a row. And that guy who he got last year, Travis Hunter is coming with him. Um, uh, to Colorado, he's rejuvenated that fan base. I'm just excited to see the type of talent that he could bring. Whether or not that talent stays there, or he stays there, to to see this talent come through is another question. But I just think it it just has lit. Uh, if I'm a Colorado fan, I'm super excited. You saw the way he elevated Jackson State. I think this year you're you're hoping that I think he could get to a bowl game, which hasn't happened in three or four years at Colorado. Um, I just think, like I said, I just think it's really good when there's more teams out West that are relevant, especially like the Pac-12 is going to be a much different league in two years. When USC and UCLA leave, you you need your core programs. You need Oregon, you need Washington, you need Arizona schools. I think you need Colorado along with Utah um, to be really relevant out there in the new era for the Pac-12. So that's why I'm going with, with, with Dion, and it's just a great storyline. It's something for good or for worse, we're going to be following it probably on a week-to-week basis every every season that he's there. Yeah, um, I think for Colorado, you're right. It is a home run, right? You're getting so much attention. You're getting so much recognition. I mean, if, if Colorado had hired, you know, Ryan Walters, for example, like that game against TCU is like a, you know, noon Eastern FS1 game or like it's buried. Now that game's going to get, I mean, you're, you're going to get so much attention um, I would imagine donations are up. I would imagine marketing, season tickets, revenue, like all that's mm-hmm. going to go through the roof. We'll see how it works on the on the field. They got a really tough schedule. I'm interested to know if the Dion shtick gets old, if they're one and four, or if they're two and three. Like the schedule's really tough, and they brought in a ton of transfers. I believe they had the number one transfer portal class in the country, if not like top two or three. Um, how quickly can that staff? I mean, he hired Sean Lewis to be his offensive coordinator. I think that was a nice hire. How quickly does that staff get things up and running? Because 
at Jackson State, I mean, they were 12 and 0, they were 11 and 1. Things were, it was really good. You had Snoop Dogg running them out on the field and rappers in the locker room. And, and if it goes good at Colorado, like they will continue that swag, they will continue that energy. I'm just interested to know. You look at their schedule next year, it's really difficult. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, TCU, Nebraska, Colorado State, then USC, Oregon are their first five games. Like, if you're one and four or two and three, what is it? You know, what does it look like? So, um, but yeah, for for Colorado, certainly it's an intriguing one. Certainly, it's one to keep an eye on. For Colorado, it's 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 a home run off the field. We'll see what happens on the field. Um, I'll touch on one as uh, well here. One that I I I think is a good fit. Um, Hugh Freeze to Auburn. Auburn is a completely crazy batshit environment. They are nuts over there. And Hugh Freeze just kind of fits right into it, man. 20, 39 and 25 uh, in five years at Ole Miss, 31 and 15 the last four years at Louisville. We all know how it ended with Ole Miss, but he's had success against Nick Saban. He's had success in the SEC. He got Malik Willis drafted, developed him into a third-round pick. Um, they're going to score points. They're going to be erratic. They're going to be crazy, but that's Auburn, man. Auburn is a fishbowl. Auburn is off the field mess. It's coups, it's booster drama, like, um, but all indications are that program has its ducks in a row with NIL. They're ready to compete Mm -hmm. in the NIL space to get players. And, and Hugh Freeze, like, I don't love the guy personally. There are some, uh, things that he did at the end of the Ole Miss tenure that were very questionable for, uh, a man of his faith and a man of his stature, but on the field, the dude wins. Dude wins. He he wanted Ole Miss. They recruited at a very high level. Some of those wins were vacated, obviously, and then obviously at Louisville or uh, at Liberty, thirty-one and fifteen uh, in four years. So, I am. Uh, I I think Auburn will get a couple of good years out of Hugh Freeze, and then it will blow up. Is my guess. It's. It's not going to be a quiet ending whenever it does end. No. It never is with either one of those two parties, with, with Auburn especially, and then also with Hugh Freeze. And, no, I agree with you. I I don't love Hugh Freeze, like probably as a person. With, who cares? I don't know the guy personally. But, yeah, I think this is going to be a really, really good fit. He obviously has won in the SEC West at a program, I think you would agree with me, probably has less resources than Auburn does. I mean, forget Auburn has played for two national titles in the last what thirteen years. Yeah, and they won one, one in one, one yeah. in twenty ten. So, and have competed close to SEC titles um, here in recent memory. So, and Auburn is like the anti like Utah, Wisconsin. Yeah. Like they are just the highs are high, the lows are low. Man, that is a erratic program, and I think yeah. it, it's a perfect fit for Hugh Freeze. Exactly, because that's his life. It's either <laughs> an exciting high or or a very low low. And you mentioned the job he did at Liberty. I mean, Liberty is now in a new conference, largely because of them. Um, and like you said, you talked about crazy. This dude literally called the game from a hospital bed. Um, called plays. I just that moment will never will never leave my mind. But and you look at their schedule too. They've got UMass at Cal, Samford, and New Mexico State. Just a murderer's row in the non-conference. Yeah, real, real tough. Just means they, more down there, you know. They do get – obviously, they get Georgia as their permanent crossover. But then Vanderbilt is their other one. So, um, I think it, it sets up you know, fairly nicely, but uh, we'll see. Um, and like you said, he can recruit much better than his pre- pre- uh, predecessor um, did. They had a really nice wrap-up to their 2033 class. They already have three four stars lined up for the 24 class. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an intriguing one for me as well. Um, if I'm moving to just intriguing and maybe not necessarily one that I love, but I think I'll love, I think one we already talked about, Kenny Dillingham at ASU. I think just the energy he's brought from a recruiting standpoint, he actually sounds like a guy who actually enjoys recruiting, unlike the, the previous head coach, values. Um, in state with the amount of guys that he brought um, on his staff that have a ton of high school, uh, Arizona high school connections. Like you mentioned, getting a guy like Jalen Rashada um, and just elevating the type of athlete that they're going to be able to get down there. I think 
he's young. Yes, maybe experience isn't necessarily on his side, but I think he's been a huge breath of fresh air for ASU. And it might take a year or two to really get that roster because he had a mess to deal with. But I'm really, really intrigued and excited about Kenny Dillingham uh, in the Valley. I agree. I was trying to struggle with which category to put him in, and I think this is probably the right one. He's the youngest head coach in college football. He's 32, 33 years old. He's only called plays one season full-time. But I like that Arizona State went away from the traditional established coach. Right. Herm Edwards, obviously older coach, Todd Graham, older coach, Dennis Erickson, older coach. They hired somebody with Valley ties. They hired somebody that wants to be there. And listen, if if he has a great four or five years and he gets poached by, you know, he gets poached by Michigan, he gets poached by Florida, whatever. So be it. Like that means he put your program in a really good spot. ASU, I don't think it hasn't had that in my lifetime. A coach get poached by another quote, bigger program. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I am intrigued to see how it goes off the field. The first couple of months have been really good, but he hasn't called a play yet. He hasn't uh, coached a game yet. Um, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Uh, first one for me in this category is going to be Matt rule at Nebraska. Um, one that I had talked about for months in the fall. I, I just thought this was going to happen. It makes too much sense. It makes too much sense. Um, We've seen Matt Rule have a lot of success at Baylor, turn that program around from a desolate program into a uh, one of the best in the conference, and that has continued under Dave Aranda. He did good things at Temple. Um, he's been out of the college game now for three years. A lot has changed since then. Um, and I think overall, I think this is a really smart hire for Nebraska. I'm not sold on if it's going to work, um, but I don't know if Nebraska can have expectations that they have, right? I think Nebraska might. I mean, if you have three, four coaches in a row that you have to fire, um, maybe you have to recalibrate where you are as a program. Um, but, you know, Matt Rule brought in Jeff Sims. They've been aggressive in the portal. I think they're going to recruit pretty well, but they're also going to recruit the guys that fit them. They like athletes. They like speedsters. I don't think they're going to focus necessarily on the high recruiting rankings. Um, but I think Matt Rule fits Big Ten football. I think he fits Nebraska. Um, I think he's going to be a good face of that program. Um, but I, I'm just intrigued because I he's had a lot of success in college, turning around really dormant programs. Nebraska hasn't been dormant, but mm-hmm. they have been a program that has underachieved what they want to be. And I'm intrigued to see what Matt Rule can do there. Yeah, I agree with you on the fact that, you know, I I really like Matt Rule as a coach. Do I like Nebraska as a program? And not particularly. So as you mentioned, yeah. this is like three or four coaches that they've gone through who have not succeeded. I mean, their last, I guess, technically successful head coach who was winning nine to ten games every year, they fired him because they wanted more. I think the biggest thing with Matt Rule, and I think why you're excited if you're a Nebraska fan, you mentioned he won – multiple 10-game seasons at Temple, took Baylor that was coming from maybe one of the biggest scandals we've seen in in college athletics um, with the sexual assault scandals under Art Bryles. Took them, I I was listening to a podcast he recently did uh, with Busting with the Boys with like Will Compton and Taylor Dewan, and he was saying they had one, when he got there, they had one player in their recruiting class when he got to Baylor. They only had one incoming player in their recruiting class and had to basically build everything from scratch. And they did. In year three, they were playing for a Big 12 title. Both of those situations, Temple and Baylor, you had to do more with less. That's not necessarily going to be an issue at Nebraska. It has, besides maybe close proximity to talent, it has everything that you want in a college football program. It's got the best facilities. You're going to have great NIL support, great booster support. It's just like you mentioned, can they find the right mix and the expectations that they're going to be? I know he wants to run more of like a pro style run oriented program, which might work better in the where Nebraska is in the Big Ten instead of more of kind of a spread out offense like Scott Frost wanted to run. So I'm intrigued. I think this will be a rebuilding year for them because I don't know how great that roster was to begin with. Um but yeah, it's it's an intriguing high. I like I said, I want to love it because I really like Matt Rule, but I can't because I just don't love where Nebraska's at. I don't trust anything about Nebraska. Uh, uh, another one I, I found intriguing: Jimmy Chadwell to mm-hmm. Liberty, um, just because like I think we both expected Jimmy Chadwell to get really a, 
a lot bigger looks than Liberty. And no offense to Liberty, but Jimmy Chadwell's had back-to-back 11-win seasons. <laughs> like, it, you know, 2020, 2021, 11-win seasons at Coastal really made them one of the best group of five programs in the country. Um, constantly competed in the Sun Belt with some pretty solid programs like Hap State and Louisville. And we've seen coaches from that league, whether it's Billy Napier, Scott Satterfield, Eli Drinkowitz, like get bigger jobs in Liberty. Um, I thought he could be in the mix um, at Colorado. I thought he could be in the mix at Georgia Tech. So to see him leave Coastal Carolina, where he's built that up pretty well to go to Liberty, um, I don't know if it makes a ton of sense on the surface. I'm guessing they paid him a good amount more money than, than you know mm-hmm. Coastal could. Um, but that's, that's a name that I'm intrigued by. How long is he there? Does it work? If, you know, is he in the mix for some SEC jobs over the next couple of years? Um, so I had Jamie Chadwell as well, kind of an intriguing move from uh, Coastal Carolina to Liberty. Yeah, I had him too, just for the fact you mentioned. And Liberty ha- is very well equipped, um, especially they're going to be moving to Conference USA, I believe, this year. They're probably going to have way more resources than just about anybody in there. And he's getting paid $4 million to be a group of five head coach uh i think he sees this as an opportunity especially with the 12 team playoff uh coming in a couple of years i think it sets liberty up like if they can run the table in conference usa maybe they they go undefeated they might have a good shot at making it where he can hopefully parlay into a power five job to me he's a guy he has already shown enough i'm still shocked that he's not at a power five job this year i don't know if it's timing or if he was just extremely picky but i really like that one um, and then another one that I just think my last one that kind of intrigues me, uh, is, uh, it's Biff Pogge. Uh, he is the new head coach at Charlotte. He was, um, uh, the associate head coach at Michigan the last couple of years, a guy who was originally was high school football coach that also ran, ran a hedge fund for a long time, made a lot of money, uh, in banking and then came back to to football and really uh, was integral the last two years in Michigan turning around. He was their assistant head coach. He was Jim Harbaugh's chief of staff. He helped. I was reading the Bruce Feldman article about him on how like he was also like was finding uh, kind of discrepancies in their coaching staff and just would communicate with them to kind of work like internal issues out and stuff. I just think it's an intriguing hire for a place like Charlotte that has not had a football program for a very long time. They're, they're leveling up. Um, they're going from conference USA to the American, uh, this year. Um, they had one good year under Will Healy and then the last two have just been disastrous. So I don't think this is something you can do right away, but I'm interested to see if he gets that going good proximity to talent. You're in a big city in Charlotte. It's one of the, fastest growing cities in the country so i just am intrigued because it was kind of an out-of-the-box hire um for them he's also older he's 62 years old but see if he can take what he did at michigan and do it at the group of five level i'm just intrigued to see that. yeah so speaking of out-of-the-box hires one that i had kind of forgot happened trent dilfer is yeah. going to be the new coach at uab uh so uh bill clark announced his retirement in june um the interim coach was Bryant Vincent. They went six and six, went to the Bahamas Bowl. Um, and then Trent Dilfer has been a high school coach in the Nashville area. He's obviously been very uh, popular on ESPN with the quarterback camps and the Elite 11 and, and both at the, high, at the high school, college, and pro level. Certainly has a big name still. Um, certainly has a big presence in the media. Um, and I'm just fascinated that they're just kind of turning the keys over mm-hmm. to him uh, at UAB. It's out of the box. I think something could be interesting there. Why not? And then one more I'll just I'll mention real quick in this category will be Ryan Walters, whose name that we talked a lot about at Colorado. Young, really good defensive coordinator, Broyles Award finalist at Illinois. Um, kind of a out-of-left-field hire for Purdue. Um, but I – really have liked what he's done there since they got Hudson card out of the transfer portal from Texas. They hired Graham Harrell who uh, was at West Virginia. And then obviously at USC had some success there on um, with the offense under Clay Helton. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued um, to see he's kind of a young guy. He's had a really a, a meteoric rise. He was, you know, Mizzou's DC had some issues there. And then the last two years have been really good at Illinois. So, I'll mention those two, Lucas, and then we can move on to hires that maybe we weren't 
so high on. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll let you get the first crack at that. Maybe a higher, you, you, you're not sure if it's going to work out. Uh, I think we might uh, agree on this one. Uh, we mentioned his replacement, uh, and that's Scott Satterfield at Cincinnati. Yeah, um, this was my first one. This was the yeah. first one that came to mind. And it, it's weird to me because I don't think Scott Satterfield's like a bad head coach. He obviously had a ton of success at Appalachian State. His first year at, at Louisville was one of the best coaching jobs that season. But they were very up and down. Obviously, his open flirt, flirt, uh, uh, flirtation with other jobs while he was at Louisville makes me worried if you're at Cincinnati. But it's also where Cincinnati's at, too. Cincinnati just lost the winningest head coach in their football program. And they're going up to the Big 12. They're going to be a power, in a Power 5 conference next year. With We don't know if that talent level right now is, going to, is good enough to handle a Power 5 schedule. And to me... The, to me, Cincinnati's a job I thought they could have had a huge branch of candidates. To me, it just felt like they wanted to show they could get a Power 5 head coach or a guy with Power 5 head coaching experience. Hey, but just FYI, the last time they did that was Tommy Tupperville, and that did not finish well. I'm not saying it's going to be the same way. Scott Satterfield would be great. It could be that, hey, it just wasn't a good mix there in Louisville, and he just needed to get out. But to me, this just—it just feels like they wanted to get a specific type of coach instead of getting the best coach in this scenario. Yeah, Satterfield went twenty-five and twenty-four in four seasons at Louisville. I get that he played in the tougher division. He had to play Clemson every year, and Wake's had a nice little run, and NC State. Like, definitely, I think the Atlantic's been the tougher. But he's also had Malik Cunningham. I mean, he's, he's had some really good offensive players over the last handful of years, right? You know, Tutu Atwell. Uh, comes to mind as well, the former wide receiver there. I just thought it was very underwhelming. I mean, this clearly seemed like Scott Satterfield was looking to get out of Louisville. And that would be a little red flag to me if I was Cincinnati. I'd be like, "Do we?" because you're right, we're going to the Power Five. We're making our jump. Let's hire somebody that can grow with us. Let's hire somebody, you know, Jim Leonard, I thought made a lot of sense for this job. Or Dion was, you know, being thrown around as well. Um, so for them to get Scott Satterfield, I was just like, eh. And we have seen kind of traditionally when you go to a new conference, you take your lumps. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be easy, right? I, I don't have Cincinnati's schedule in front of me. I know that the Big 12 released their schedule a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, you're – and listen, Cincinnati's played, you know, Notre Dame. They played Indiana several, like the last couple of years. Like they have certainly been um, – they have – they and the Americans been been pretty good. Right, UCF's been good. Tulane this year, like the Americans, not bad. But I, I just think it's a different level. So I'm I'm interested to see what Satterfield does and, and what does Cincinnati deem success now that they're in, in the Big Twelve. Yeah, uh, and I'm looking at their schedule. So they get they do get Pitt in the non-con. It's at Pitt, um, and they have o Oklahoma at BYU, Iowa State, Baylor at Oklahoma State, UCF at Houston, at West Virginia, and then finish with Kansas. Uh, the year. So, but still, it's still much better than in the AAC. You really have to look out for what two or three teams that can really yeah. give you a tough thing. Where we saw in the Big Twelve, the separation between even from the top spot to the bottom was uh, not very distinct. Um, so, like you mentioned, like I look back, I remember when Utah joined the Pac-12. It took them you know, two to three years to really build up the depth and everything. Um, but look, now they're the two-time reigning Pac-12 champs. Um, so they've obviously figured it out. But yeah, like you mentioned, it's going to take a couple of years. So interesting to see how that one plays out. Uh, um, one more that I had, and this isn't necessarily that I'm, I'm low on the hire. I'm just kind of low on the program, and that's Stanford. Um, they hired Troy Taylor from Sacramento State. He was 30-8. and eight. Um in the FCS in four years for the Hornets. I just don't know if Stanford can ever get back to where, certainly not where they were with Jim Harbaugh and early in the David Shaw era. I just wonder if, if they're going to struggle to make bowl games. I mean, whatever conference they're in, whether they go to the big 10, like some of the rumors have them, whether they stay in the PAC 12 um, with the way they're set up academically with the transfer portal and recruiting, 
recruiting, what recruiting is nowadays, how committed is Stanford to putting on a good football program? Um, and I think this hire kind of shows it. They, they, got, they got a pretty high profile FCS name and not to say that that can't work. Um, but the fact that I think a lot of people in power five football, whether they're assistants or other coaches or hot shot, you know, G five coaches really weren't interested in this job or weren't targeted, I think might tell you something. So, um, listen, Troy Taylor could prove me wrong. You go out and get Stanford back to winning nine, 10 games, but that has just been a really a dormant program the last really mm-hmm. since COVID. And I, I, I just don't know if they're going to be able to get back to even being a consistently good bowl team. Well, and it's tough, especially with the new era of college football. The transfer portal just kills them because the amount of players they lose, they're just not going to be able to make up those roster spots through the transfer portal. Um, they Just with the, the academic restrictions and stuff like that, it's hard to get transfers in there. And even with the COVID years now, a lot of their guys who want to use their COVID year weren't qualifying for the master's programs at Stanford. So they had to transfer out. Um, in order to keep playing. So unless they really do that, I just, it's hard. I agree with you. It's hard for me to see Stanford getting back to at least a competitive standpoint yeah. uh, in the Pac-12. Um, and like you mentioned, like if they, I think they could have gotten some, uh, you would expect a team that has had the success they've had should have probably been able to get a better candidate than an FCS head coach. Um, so that's kind of where their program is right now. Yep. Uh, any other hires that you want to kind of say uh, not not a fan of, or I can talk about Dion for the next twenty minutes. <laughs> um, I was actually going to say uh, Tim Beck at uh, at Coastal Carolina. I don't think it's a bad hire, yeah. but it's just such a Jamie Chadwell was just so damn good there. It was going to be hard for anybody to replace or even keep uh, what they were doing. And look, Tim Beck's been a well respected assistant. Pretty much everywhere he's gone, he's coached at Texas, he's coached at Ohio State, he's coached obviously at NC State. So he's been around, has seen a lot of good head coaches. It just felt like, I don't know, it just feels like one of those hires where you hear it and you're like, really? Like, <laughs> like to me, I felt like the way, the where that program was, especially, uh, I know at the time you didn't know if Grayson McCall was going to be coming back. But I felt like they could have maybe had gotten more of like an up and coming type guy where you know Tim Beck's like 56 yeah. to me if if those guys aren't getting head coaching jobs with the experience he has for a while there's usually a reason behind that so to me it's kind of like Satterfield I just wasn't super impressed but then again no idea how this is going to work out yeah um I, I kind of wanted to put you on the spot and be like who's the first coach to get extended and who's the first coach to like get fired but oh. like who like I I almost think if Hugh Freeze has one good year at oh, at Auburn, he gets yeah. an extension. Uh, I could also see that for Kenny. Um, I mean, all these coaches sign such long term deals now, right? I mean, True. Luke Fickle got seven. Matt Rule got Matt eight. Rule got, Matt Rule got eight. I don't know. I think Dion's is five, maybe five or six. He um, Dion might be like if they go like eight and four, nine and three, his first year, and because he's getting paid what five million dollars each year. Uh, yes. I could see that potentially. Um, I've debated with Luke Fickle. Like, if if God forbid, like Ohio State comes out, like let's say Wisconsin goes ten and two, and then right. Wisconsin, and then all of a sudden, like either Ryan, either Ryan Day loses to Michigan again, and they let him go, or he goes to the NFL. Yeah. Um, I could maybe see that as a as a scenario where he might get a pay bump. But I agree, he Fri- you just got to go with an SEC school because they've got yeah. more money than God and they just, they spend it stupidly, but they have it to spend stupidly. Yeah. Uh, first coach fired. This is kind of under weird circumstances, but like Zach Arnett from Mississippi state, just because he, he took over under odd circumstances, obviously tragic circumstances with the passing of Mike Leach. They're not paying him a lot of money. I could easily see if Mississippi state goes six and six, five and seven this year. They just say, Hey, like, thanks for, doing this transition year we're gonna let you go we'll pay you handsomely and we'll hire kind of our own our mm-hmm. own guy so um but yeah it'll it'll be interesting man coaching carousel is always fun always yeah. love talking about this stuff any any final thoughts here before we sign off uh not too i'm i'm always 
uh, I'm always interested to see how these all play out. I know last year we did a thing where I think we looked at guys who were hired three years ago and seeing kind of what the coaching grades were and where they're at now. Um, I think maybe one more just kind of intriguing one, I think, is Brent Key. Um, You talked about him a little bit. Was the interim coach after Jeff Collins got fired at Georgia Tech. They did really well. He coached seven games. They went four and three, which was more uh, just in seven games than Jeff Collins had won in any any of his previous three seasons. Um, I know interims are always difficult to judge because a lot of times they're hired, I feel like, on emotion, not necessarily with the long-term aspects. But I thought he did a really good job. He's a Georgia Tech alum, so you know his heart and everything like that is in it. And once again, with no divisions, um, but you have to play Clemson every year. Uh, I think they still have Clemson as a protected rival, and you still have to play Georgia every year. Um, so kind of intrigued by that one. But otherwise, I think we touched on. Uh, I think we touched on pretty much all the ones worth mentioning. All right. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Lucas Lucas underscore Rody, correct? Yes, uh, underscore Rody fifty eight. Fifty eight at Lucas yeah. underscore Rody fifty eight. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Baffo. You can follow the pod on Twitter uh, at Running for Roses. Uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get uh, your podcast: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of the goodies. Uh, for Lucas Rody, I'm Ryan Baffo. Lucas, thank you for listening to another episode of Running for the Roses. <laughs>